Hi, everyone. I'm Steph Angstadt, and welcome to the Collective Creamery podcast in our new format, where each interview gets a focus on a different topic inspired by the specific producer that we're interviewing. In today's episode, we're visiting with Sam and Stacey Kennedy from the Farm at Doe Run in Chester County, Pennsylvania. You've heard of them. We're going to hear a bit about their farm, their creamery, their cheesemaking philosophy, and how, as a partnership in work and in life, they've created unique roles that contribute to this international award-winning farmstead team. This interview was recorded in two different parts, and in the second portion, where Sam takes us into a deeper exploration of rennet, we're joined by master fermenter and friend of the podcast, Vito Forte. Before we start the interview, we just want to ask if you'll take a moment to respond to our quick survey, which you can find in our show notes. It only takes two minutes, and it really will help us direct our conversations to those juicy topics that get your wheels turning. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate it, write a review, and tell your cheese-loving friends about it. We so appreciate it. And you can learn more about our cheese subscription and check out our calendar of events at collectivecreamery.com. We are sitting at the Farm at Doe Run on the most blustery, cold, late November day. And it's really special to catch a moment with our good friends, Sam and Stacy Kennedy, at, because we're in the height of the holiday season. And you know, if you're a cheesemaker or a cheesemonger, the crazy time that everybody's having right now, I mean, we're working 24 seven. So graciously, uh, Sam and Stacy hosted us for dinner tonight and agreed to sit down and have a little chat. I think it's really interesting because a few years ago, I want to say it was ACS in Providence. I was talking with uh, my friend Kate Turcott from, at that point, she was up at Shelburne Farm. And after the awards ceremony, she turned to me and she said, who are these folks at the farm at Doe Run? They are on fire. They've come out of nowhere. What is going on? And pretty much, I mean, I think I should like, rattle off a little bit of the awards. She's winning awards from the Farm at Doe Run. I mean, we can go back to 2016, where the Farm at Doe Run entered in the World Cheese Awards, and they won gold for St. Malachi Reserve. That year, the awards were held in San Sebastian uh, in Spain. And the team from Doe Run actually traveled to Spain that year, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But also here in 2018, another big highlight was that the Natural Rhine Division St. Malachi won a World Cheese Award for Best in Class. Best in Class, listeners. Right, it came right from Chester County, from my home county in Pennsylvania. <laughs> a lot of people are thinking, oh, that cheese probably came from France or Switzerland or maybe Vermont, but it came from Chester County, Pennsylvania. I'm so proud of that for them. Pennsylvania Farm Show is no stranger for the Farm and Doe Run, winning many awards there. They've carried best in show ever since the inaugural year. And last year in 2017, St. Malachi took that award home. So we got a lot of action going on down here in these hills. You know, welcome, Sam and Stacy. Thank you, Sue. Yeah. Thank you for having us here. Oh, we'd love to have you. Um, well, we'd love for you to have us. How about that? <laughs> Can you 
give us a little bit of a snapshot of the farm at Doe Run? Like, give us like, you know, a rundown of stats. So uh, we milk all three herds here at the farm at Doe Run. Uh, we're about 90 acres of grazing pasture. We do more of a, a free grazing kind of approach to our cows and our, our sheep and goat. We milk Normandies and Jersey cows. Uh, we have about 21 milking right now. We'll kind of boost that up to about 26 during the summertime, 27 milking. We also milk about 48 East Frisian sheep, as well as caracols uh, that are kind of bred into that mix. And then uh, we milk about 42 milking uh, dairy goats. Uh, with a mix of Sonnen and Nubians. Oh, that's a good blend. Yes, yeah. So we have the best of both worlds, you know, with that blend. Uh, and then we kind of call our, our cross the Snubians. The Snubians. Well, we are down here, you know, in the Unionville area. <laughs> if you're from outside of Pennsylvania, we're in high horse country. Lots of fox hunting and show jumping and eventing happening. It's rare to find a cow anymore in these parts. So... Hence the Snoobians. <laughs> but it really isn't. Just my jest. <laughs> a little bit more about the farm is that we then turn into, we then take the milk every day and turn it into cheese. We make some mixed milk cheeses in the spring and summer months. And then our goat and sheep herd quit milking on us <laughs> or they go into uh, their winter break around the early fall season. So September and August is when both small herds stop milking for us. You must kind of look forward to that because I can only imagine managing three species, three milks for the height of the season can be quite a juggling act. I'm sure. I mean, it's probably super exciting when um, the goats kid in and the sheep start lambing, the ewes start lambing, but I bet you're ready for them to go dry. Yeah, you know, the uh, the first week of every two hours through the night getting up to make sure that all the does and the and the ewes are, are doing good is uh, is, is kind of nice. And then after that, it's it's kind of annoying. <laughs> but uh but then once you know everybody's birthed and we have all those milks coming in, it, it really does get exciting. It does you know we have to deal with spring flush just like any other dairy farm. Once we get those animals out on grass, and you know May and June is definitely the the peak of our season, and it's kind of that over overwhelming. You know what are we going to do with all this milk? Where are we going to store it? What cheeses do we make it into? And then. Um, before you know it, you're kind of wishing that you had some of those cool milks to play with. You know, uh, September comes in no time. Once that buck is in with the herd, we stop milking the goats. Uh, the sheep, you know, stop about a month before that. So it's kind of, you know, once they're gone, you miss it. It's a little bit of a fleeting season, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. yeah I never get to experience that because we milk year round. <laughs> but I've been definitely daydreaming about seasonal production because our friends up at Parish Hill have stopped making cheese so you don't you guys make cheese year-round as well with the dairy with the cow herd yes yes we do um, but there is something to be said to be able to take a little bit of a vacation in that winter time when you're doing milking seasonally right so. yeah just to like restore a little bit it's such a pu push through the spring and summer and the fall and the holiday sales very much so yeah. can you guys tell us a little bit about your roles here at the farm 
Of course, of course. So um, I'm part of uh, a, a team of cheesemakers. So there's actually four of us now. There's the two head cheesemakers, uh, Matt Hetlinger and myself. And then we have two assistants right now. We have Brendan Hurley, who is uh, working his way up through the system, came from uh, a background in teaching. So he's, you know, we're bringing him up from the, you know, right from the here's a cow, here's what an udder is. You know, uh, and so we're kind of explaining that route from there. And then we also have uh, uh, Jeremiah Timmons. And so he's a, a gentleman that we just hired. He's about two weeks into the job right now, um, but he's got a culinary arts background. So he's, you know, has a little more of a, a food centric background and some passion with cheese. He was a cheesemonger down in uh, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, excuse me. Um, but uh, he's, you know, has a little bit more of that cheese knowledge, that cheese background that that will drive that passion as well and drive the, the pursuit of education for us. That's great. How, how is the division of labor then? Are you set up in teams of two or doesn't it work like that? How do you manage the, the make room and the off not? So um, between Matt and I, uh, I'll be, you know, so we'll do kind of a bi-weekly, bi-weekly schedule uh, where I'll be the cheesemaker one week and Matt will be off and or, and then we'll switch the following week. But then uh, Brendan and Jeremiah are on an overlapping part-time schedule. So we always have one of them there, but it's not every day that we have four people working. Well, that's great. So for you and Matt, you don't have like certain cheeses that are just your cheeses. Everybody knows how to make all the cheeses. They assist each other, work collaboratively on every style of cheese, I guess, right? Yes, yes. So, um, you know, we'll both be developing cheeses in our in our spare time and in our and what we're kind of pursuing in our own profession or our own professional lives. But um, for the most part, you know, every cheese is interchangeable, uh, and we've worked really hard to actually be able to take the hand of the cheesemaker almost out of the mix, where you don't really tell a big difference between what Matt produces and what I produce. Um, and it, it took a lot of years of actually collaborating on how to modify the way I was taught to make cheese at the Vermont Institute of Artisanal Cheese, which, you know, versus where Matt was taught how to make cheese um, through the Ohio State University. I was thinking when you were talking about, you know, um, developing new cheeses, can you talk about that process for you? Of I mean, course. So, and um, what, what do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> 29. So, um, you know, for me with developing new cheeses, a lot of it comes from just uh, essentially a product or a, a thought or an idea. I mean, it's probably where a lot of people draw inspiration from. But, uh, you know, something like the Spanish cheeses that, uh, that we've won, you know, it's a good amount of awards for with the number 11 and number 15 or the, the black swallowtail now with the number 11. You know, it was partially our trips to Spain, but then also it was me being able to source rennet paste. So I found a source of rennet paste and I didn't know what to do with it. And so that kind of fueled my pursuit of knowledge to where I wanted to figure out you know, what's the best call, you know, what's the best use for this? What's the best cheese style? And then with the trips to Spain, it kind of just solidified it in my, in my, in my head that I can actually make it a reality using these rennets. 
But then other cheeses are, you know, found inspiration all over the place. I mean, it could be just, you know, something I've tried uh, in a cheese shop, you know, that's, you know, Stacy and I, when we vacation, we vacation to farms, you know, we're kind of always traveling around and pursuing cheeses and going to farmstead facilities and seeing what's out there, going to cheese shops, trying new cheeses. But uh, it could be anything from somebody handing me a bottle of alcohol and saying, I want you to do something with this. Or it could be, uh, you know, a, a byproduct of an industry, something like grape must, where I just go, all right, what was this used classically in? And how can I kind of modernize it and use uh, some of, you know, more of a modernist cuisine technique to the approach? It just made me think about this cheese that's coming out for the holiday season, Holly, which is a really fantastic collaboration with Trogues Brewing. We are so fortunate here in Pennsylvania to have access to so many great brewers. And Trogues is just maybe an hour and 20 minutes north of us here. And tell us about this little collaborative cheese, Holly. It definitely has the sweetest Christmas name. Of course. Uh, so, um, you know, it was a great collaboration. It's uh you know, we had um, Hunter and the team from Trogues come out. Uh, the owners, Chris and John, made it out to the farm. Uh, we toured them the facilities and we, you know, gave them a whole tasting of our cheese line. And we kind of just had a, a few ideas sitting on the back burner. The cheese, Holly, the first rendition of it was actually uh, brought out to our first meeting of the Rennet Rough Riders at Tallulah's uh, Garden uh, in Philadelphia. So it's something that, you know, was really enjoyable then. Um, and then I kind of just set it on the back burner and, and just kind of waited for that perfect moment to be able to bring it back out. You know, and that cheese was just a pursuit of Brebuse de Argental. So I had that cheese at a cheese shop and I just kind of said, all right, you know, it's a natto covered, but let me see if I can't get a B. Linens rind going and then have that pecandidum kind of grow in over top of it. And it kind of worked out perfectly. So. So it, it really does become, uh, I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a really ex great expression of the collaboration between the farm at Doe Run, your milk, this, this beautiful cheese with the wash from Trogues. And I just have to tell you, listeners, if you're not following the farm at Doe Run on Instagram or on Facebook, get on there because there is the most beautiful video of the process of the making of this cheese. And it really gives you some insight into the farm, the collaborative nature of it. And I'm gonna say, if there's like 1,700 views of it, probably 900 are of me, because I go to bed at night and I watch it. I love watching that. It's such a lovely little video. It's a good segue into maybe more behind the scenes, quiet, but extremely powerful voice. That is Stacy Kennedy, who is so, just skilled at like conveying, expressing the aesthetic of this farm and the story behind it. And Stacy, you know, um, I think you you're just in this unique position. Like you have this you have this role, which is almost like a bird's eye view of the farm. You are, you know, client relations, customer service, communications, marketing, sales. Um, I've like bumped into you you know, lecturing like a counter of cheesemongers 
in Philadelphia. Like you're just, you're everywhere. And I really want to hear more about your role, which is so unique in this industry. I feel very fortunate to have uh, the role that I do here at the Farmento Run, being part of this small yet mighty team. You know, uh, it's the three of us that manage the creamery, Matt, Sam, and myself. Uh, every day, you know, 80% of the job is cleaning. So we all kind of chip in there. So even though I get the fun customer relations of my customers and handling the sales of all of our cheese, um, we do also all chip in for the affinage duties and cleaning duties on the farm. I also manage the chicken herd with Maya, our part-time, or actually she's, she's our full-time uh, employee at the creamery as well. Yeah, so I do have a wonderful list of clients that I I can actually say that I truly love and enjoy every moment that I get to spend communicating with them and explaining our cheeses to them and uh, listening to their needs especially which helps uh, sometimes drive our production as well inside with Sam and Matt then we'll take everyone's feedback to heart you know and uh, the cheeses that they really love we name like the batch number 11 wound up uh, joining forces with Carrie Otter who's our illustrator for our labels and she helped together help worked together to draw and illustrate the Black Swallowtail label and that's something that we've put into a larger production this last year. Tell us a little bit about that cheese. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a raw milk, sheep, cow, and goat blend. It was inspired by our travels to Spain, so it's a Hispanico-inspired recipe. It has a black wax rind to it. Nice little bit of a looser knit curd in there. It's pressed, but yet a little bit looser, so very traditional of like a Manchego-inspired recipe. A little further up the mountain, they use a little bit more uh, lamb's paste rennet is what we learned visiting the shepherds out in San Sebastian, as well as a little bit more of the sheep's milk, a little bit less goats up that way, and definitely no cows. Um, <laughs> so very little bit of cow's milk added to that cheese. Um, but it's lovely. It has a great kind of piquant breakdown, I would say, good little spice to it. I say it's always very masculine when I explain it to my customers. Uh, to me, it's kind of that dark Spanish cheese with uh, just the right little bright notes in there. And you really taste kind of that almost, you know, how they explain a good beer, a little dank, a little dense, you know, in that pace, which is kind of interesting, you know, a little different than Listeners, you're getting Stacy Kennedy unbridled <laughs> right now. And this is this is really the beauty of what you do. This is how you market this cheese. You know, you you talk the talk, you know how you know what's happening in the make room, you understand the aging process. Your team is tasting the cheeses what weekly or yeah, pretty much. Pretty um, much weekly. So you about four times a week when we're pulling cheese for our customers, we're tasting each batch before it leaves. And you're conveying to them what is happening and what they're going to get and how it's going to taste. I think you're just like a customer service master, you know? You have this level of hospitality with your customers that I don't know too many people that can do what you do, Stacy. Well, I appreciate that, too. Thank true. you. What are the what are the tools? Because, I mean, a lot of our listeners are cheesemakers who do, you know, kind of a one-person show, do a lot of their own marketing. Do you have any helpful tips or like what are the tools that you rely on to help you deal with customers? Absolutely. Uh, the first thing I like to do is or even suggest to our listeners uh, that are right now in a cheese room or cleaning up at the milk house right now um, after a long day and thinking about that supply of cheese that needs to get sold. 
um, is to really think about who you're selling your cheese to and what those customers' needs are. And start by just putting together all of those contacts in one email and email them weekly and let them know what's happening on your farm. Give them a little insight, give them a little story to share with their customers and tell them what batches you're really enjoying that week. It doesn't have to be the same batch each week and you can be really honest with them. Um, You know, say, you know what, production was a little low this week, you know, or hey, it's been raining a bunch, the fields are kind of flooded, the grass is a little oversaturated. Um, These batches aren't turning out as, you know, as precise as they were maybe a year ago that you remember, but they're still really wonderful in this way. And this is how I would serve it or how I would pair it. And your customers really enjoy those little tidbits. You know, they really want that story to share. They really want that insight and they really respect the honesty. And an email only takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes of your morning, you know, before you, maybe after you pump over the milk, go ahead and send that little email. And I'm sure you'll start getting email responses back. I find that email is the easiest way to organize our, you know, we probably have a list of around 150 customers we email weekly. And we collect those orders by email. I always suggest my customers email me because I always say, well, we might be in the caves, so we probably won't hear the phone. Uh, So they know to, to send an email and you never really miss an email. You can always go back and check. And then communication from that point is very easy. Um, You're not trying to catch somebody. You're easily responding via email. You're collecting that order and then letting them know, you know, when that's going to ship out to them because that is important. And uh, just those little bits of communication go a long way. Stacey, do you follow up after the order has been shipped out to people? I try to let the FedEx system do that. I uh, put their email right in, let make sure they get the notification that it, it had shipped out from the farm and when they can expect it. Um, there's always those certain customers where um, maybe they're not at the location always. So maybe you want to add a signature to that shipment to make sure your cheese you know, that your herdsmen worked so hard to produce the milk and your cheesemakers uh, cheese had put in all of those hours of cheesemaking and affinage work. Um, I always say I come in at the 11th hour and I just have to make sure to take care of all of that hard work <laughs> and make sure it gets to our end customer perfectly. Well, you do such a beautiful job all along the communication trail and um, we love at Collective Creamery when we call and order cheese for our subscription and Steph and I sort of want to fight over who it's going to get shipped to because the box is so beautifully packaged. <laughs> it's true. If you're on a cheese counter somewhere <laughs> and you have received cheese from the farm at Doron, you know exactly what I'm talking about. She's what do a master. You think, like, what do you think that um, the greatest sort of like awareness or education gaps are within the monger community like what do you wish that more of them would ask you about what do you what do you hope to see in this community in terms of education I think it's really growing in the fact of maybe more so on like the side of like here's the farm and at the end of the day farmstead cheesemakers are grass farmers and I think it's really important for cheesemongers to start really thinking about seasonality of weather what's growing in our region to really 
like hone in on these batches, you know, or maybe even ask like, what's this odd number that's on the side of the wheel? Um, for the most part at the farm at Doe Run, we use Julian dates. So each wheel, you know, the exact day that that milk was turned into cheese. And that really tells a, a whole nother story. Uh, I do try to communicate that in my weekly emails, but uh, sometimes I don't cover every batch. And I think it's really important because, you know, even though we do have great consistency at the farm, seasonally, the cheeses do change. Um, I do enjoy winter batches of Seven Sisters, and I love the shoulder season batches of St. Malachi. And, you know, there's something to say um, that if we didn't have the milk production that we do, we would probably make those cheeses more on a seasonal basis based off those flavor profiles and how the texture just comes out so perfect those certain times of year. Uh, since our customers respect the idea of the storytelling and the seasonality of them changing, I find that to be really interesting. And I think that the mongers are really kind of latching on to that part of the story, which is kind of a more in-depth story for their end customer. Mm. Cool. That's great. Um, you know, and, and we're kind of talking about like getting the product out to market right now, but I want to go back to what happens in the cheese room, you know, with you, Sam and Matt, because, you know, Stacy so beautifully expresses what's happening with the milk in the change of the feed, the change of the seasonality. And, you know, when I think of you, Sam, I think immediately of a technician, you know, you you're tracking all kinds of things you're so thorough all of this gets expressed in the quality of the cheese i mean i just would love to talk about you know what you're tracking how you're using that to inform you you know now that you've been here at the farmer dough run you have a much a pretty comprehensive feel of the milk going through the seasons there's no no regular year this year, as Stacy just alluded to, has been a heck of a challenge with all the rain and the animals are, you know, the milk is a little bit different. So, you know, let's just talk about what's going on in the make room and downstairs in the caves. Yeah, so, um, you know, this year was actually, it was a very tough year, um, especially when the animals are out on grass. Um, you know, it's... We, we call it washout uh, when you have that much rain coming in. You know, the grass just sucks up all that rain. Your quantity goes up, but your quality of milk goes way down. Uh, yields go down. So it really does throw you for a loop when you're in that moment. And for us this summer, it was about two weeks on and then two weeks off and then two weeks on and two weeks off. So you were constantly manipulating constantly changing, constantly reformulating. And, you know, we don't track as much as what we don't test as much as what you might think. Uh, we don't have a lack to check. It's on our dream list. It's on the wish list. Uh, we don't have a moisture analyzer. Again, it's on the dream list. It's on that wish list. Uh, if any listener out there wants to sponsor it, please come right forward. Uh, but it's not necessary in the same respect. But, um, you know, for the most part, what we track is, uh, you know, our uh, simple butcher's yield. Uh, it helps me, you know, just be able to take a look at what was our end result as far as poundage of cheese, what was our starting result or our starting number for poundage of milk, 
and just kind of give you a general idea of where you should be yearly. Um, it does take about a year of experience to be able to do that just because you have to start looking at it seasonally. You have to start you know, modifying what you're doing in the wintertime versus the summertime. Um, and then uh, the other spot that we do record is salt content. Uh, salt is, you know, especially specific. Uh, it's essential to our process. It's, you know, what we use to bind water. It's what we use to, uh, you know, hold out preservation. And then it also has an integral aspect to flavor. Um, you know, just adding salt to raw curd will give you a really good understanding of what it can do uh, and, and the textures that it can create and how it modifies a product. Um, so we do do analyz, you know, analyzation of salt. Uh, and then of course we do all the swabs and, and all the microbiological testing that we need to do. Uh, you know, but for the most part, it does have to do with the skill of the cheese maker. Um, you know, that's why I'm kind of always an open book. It's because I know, the way I interpret a recipe is just going to be different the way, you know, Stephanie or Sue interprets a recipe. Um, so we could all make the same cheese and they would all come out great because we're all excellent cheesemakers, but they are going to be different from each other. And it's just that interpretation. Yeah. That's kind of the beauty of what we do. You know, the personality really comes through sometimes in the interpretation. Yeah, I, I know. I was just thinking about that trip to Spain. I remember when you guys went and, you know, what do you, what, what did you take away from that? I mean, what, you know, I think that it's so important to get off the farm and it's so hard to do. It's just like so important to go somewhere else and taste cheese and talk to other people because that's really how we learn is sharing knowledge. You know, like you said, be an open book. We can learn from each other. But what were like, what did that mean to you guys to go to Spain and travel around? Uh, you know, it meant the world to us. Um, it was our first big trip as a team. So as a collective, it was our first time that we got to, uh, you know, be on a working retreat, working vacation, so to speak, together. Uh, we also met some really great people. We uh, had a chance to be toured around by uh, Gabriella Ranelli, who is a great tour guide, food tour guide in that region with Tenador Tours. You know, she got us into some of the more renowned cheesemakers of that region, but then she also kind of clued us into the ones that were starting to push the boundaries. You know, uh, in Europe, when you start dealing with the regional cheeses, they don't have that much enticement to kind of branch out and to push the boundaries of their culture and their taste profiles of what they're kind of accustomed to. Oh, it was really nice to uh, to meet some of the cheesemakers that were starting to branch out from Cabrales and Idiothabel. Uh, and, you know, they were starting to push into more Stilton-type blue cheeses or more of a Gorgonzola, and they were doing soft ripens. and you Working know, on these, like, new, what we would call new world cheeses. Exactly, right? exactly, and right. using new world techniques, you know, not so much relying on, on so much of the old world traditions of that region, which is really nice. You know, it's always nice to be, you know, outside of that constriction. It's interesting because we don't, you know, we are so free and independent here in the U.S. that, you know, when you're in Europe, you're kind of having to work within the structure, within the system, within the realm. 
And then I just think it must be an exciting time for the people who are pushing back a little bit and creating this. I mean, it's just kind of as it is here in the U.S. People are so independent natured. Exactly. But it's, there's still that, that sense of risk, that sense of, of the unknown, um, almost where, you know, I could imagine, uh, you know, people like Cowgirl Creamery and some of the older cheesemakers were at in the 70s where they're trying to push this product out that's not so much in our culture and like a little Judy Shad business going on, exactly, right? Exactly. Wabash Cannonball. Nobody had had that in the US. Exactly. And, you know, to be the 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 person that, you know, takes on that role and takes on the responsibility of pushing those items and and educating their their clientele becomes uh a little more personal and a little more important than anybody even really notices. You know, especially in, you know, especially in Europe, you, you have the restrictions of the DOP, but then it's also nice because you have this legacy of tradition. And that's something that, you know, we strive for in the U.S. every day. You know, all we want is our own terroir. All we want is our own cheese. And in reality, we're all making our own cheeses, but they all are renditions because this is a 2000 year old practice, 3000 year old practice. So it's, you know, when it comes down to it, the, the gentleman that was on the farm or the family or the woman that was on the farm milking cows 400 years ago without any outside, uh, any outside, um, influences, you know, probably ran through a lot of the mistakes that we make. They just figured it out and moved on. You know, we sometimes kind of harbor them and, and kind of focus on them. Exactly. I think the Percival's in uh, the book, Cheese and Culture, which we keep saying we're going to have a book review about. We'll get on it. Um, Everyone just read it in the meantime, if you haven't yet. But uh, I think they did a really good job, um, among other things, of explaining that tension, right, between um, like the support, um, but also the constraints. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a it's a paradox in a lot of ways. Exactly. And, you know, there's that it's that balance of of what can we do to push ourselves into the modern and but how can we also, you know, reminisce about the past and and actually pay homage to you know people that did this as their absolute only thing that they did in life because their goal was to preserve milk because the community needed that and you know for us to to be on the other side of it where we're selling it almost as a as a convenience or as a as a perk um it's you know it's just a different different reality to the way we kind of pursue it yeah how we're always talking about how do we shift that culture of eating cheese in the united states it's something that we all are working on right right you know how do we take it from being a specialty product to being as it should be on the table every day no definitely that's really cool um stacy what about you what what uh did the spain trip do for you well, it was the first and only time I ever ate lamb, so that was interesting. <laughs> did you like it? I did, and you actually could hear them right on the other side of the wall uh, <laughs> as we were enjoying that fresh lamb. But it, the food there was, I mean, I can close my eyes and I can see the waves at San Sebastian and taste the briny 
well-textured food that was so simple and so of their region, yet so diverse, um, you know, between the olive oil selections, the olives, uh, the different uh, salted fishes, you know, every dish seemed to have that, but place you would go for pinchos, which was the Basque region's uh, term for tapas, uh, you would pretty much bar hop, but instead of for for alcohol, you were pretty much food hopping. So pinchos is like a beautiful time in San Sebastian after your siesta and uh, starts around seven o'clock at night. They, they and do snacking so well, don't <laughs> they? And, uh, we'll be down here tomorrow night for pinchos <laughs> with you guys. <laughs> It's all of a sudden a complete opposite schedule than what we're used to working on the farms, you know, early mornings. It's uh, sleep all afternoon and eat all night until 2 a.m. And we enjoyed every moment of it. One of the great takeaways was talking to one of the elders in the community who, uh, while we were at the lamb farm, uh, the sheep farm, where they were making cheese and also enjoying the boys for meat, we, we were talking to the elder there and he kind of went down into his personal cellar and brought out this one little, little, you know, two ounce piece of cheese. And it was the eight month old version of uh, the traditional idiothable. And uh, traditionally now uh, they sell it so young at four months old that uh, the gentleman explained that this was his family's reserve and he had just a little bit to share with us all. And it was uh, amazing how fantastic the eight-month-old batch was compared to the four-month-old batches, which was available everywhere in the city of San Sebastian. And he you know, went on to explain to us that you know, the demand was so high that they wound up selling this cheese at a much younger age and that his generation is the last to know of this amazing eight-month-old uh, version that was much more common when he was growing up in San Sebastian. So kind of showed you kind of the, from the marketing side, kind of the supply and demand and, and what happens within a community that they really listened to. You know, the community spoke up and was like, we need more of it and we need it now. And they fell in love with it at four months old. But the legacy of this cheese was actually traditionally sold at eight months old and uh, had much uh, the amazing characteristics of the flavor and texture were uh, undefiably different. <laughs> it sounds like it was just one of those trips of a lifetime. And of course, you were just ready to absorb it all. You know, I, I should also point out that Sam comes to cheese making from a culinary background. We talked about this. Did we talk about that in the last podcast? Yeah. Folks yeah. coming. And I think, you know, it really is an asset to have that background, that kind of food culture and the science behind it, and it really has served you well with your insatiable appetite for learning. So how do you, do you draw on your culinary background on a daily basis, or is it just kind of there subconsciously? Um, how does it, how do you use it? Uh, in both ways. So it's it's always there. Um, it's in my training. You know, I did four years of, of college under, in, under culinary arts. So it's always kind of lying in the background, kind of sitting and waiting to to kind of pop out. Um, but it is, you know, essential to what I do in cheese making. Uh, it's essential to my approach to recipes and the technologies of cheese. Uh, and then it's also, 
you know, extremely useful as far as, you know, dealing with customers and dealing with, you know, our, our customers, because we're basically, you know, for the most part, a wholesale uh, business. So, you know, it's, you know, I can relate to chefs. I understand, you know, their qualms, their needs, and I can also kind of forecast the way the cheese is going to be sold. So I can kind of predict, you know, what's the best condition that I need to sell this cheese to a chef for? Are they going to have a program where they can handle ripening it so I can sell them something that's young? Or should I be selling them soft cheese that's perfectly aged? And then we should probably, you know, modify, you know, our system accordingly, Um, you know, because we want that cheese to be the best representation of us and what we do here at the farm at Doe Run. And sometimes when, sometimes when uh, you, you know, are thinking you're doing the chef a favor by selling them a soft cheese, but they're selling it that day, maybe it's not giving the customer that they're selling it to the best representation of what you were trying to pursue and uh, and the goals that you were trying to obtain with your cheese. So it is something that does have a, an extremely integral part of of my cheese making. Um, not the, you know, even more so is, uh, it's actually, you know, what got me into cheese making, uh, as far as, you know, when I was in culinary school, we were able to travel out to Northern California. So I got to meet the Giacomi sisters at Point Reyes back when they still, you know, were a very small facility and they were just making, uh, Point Reyes blue, you know, and that was the only cheese they were pursuing at that time. And then, you know, we got to meet Igvela, uh, you know, which is, I just wish that I cared a little bit more about cheese making when I met him and when I staged at the facility, because now I could go back and I could actually probably reverse engineer a good chunk of it, but it's just kind of snippets of what I can remember of us being in that facility. Then we also got to meet the family at Bellwether Farms too. And do a, a day of staging with them, so we got to make you know work the 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 sheep's milk ricotta uh, after they pursued a hard cheese make that morning. So it's you know it, it's absolutely integral to what's created the passions and and my pursuits in cheese making and and the way that I kind of uh, launch forward in my educational aspects of it. What um we're gonna ask both of you this question. Um what what are your biggest challenges as a cheesemaker? And um then what what is it that comes most easily to you? So um my biggest challenge as a cheesemaker uh would have to be uh, making one cheese. Uh <laughs> If anybody's seen our cheese line, um, that's because we don't like to make just one cheese. Um, we make probably about 11 habitually, and then that can jump up from anywhere in a given season up to 15 or 18 cheeses. Um, and With three species of milk. With three species of milk, of course. So that does give us a lot of options when it, when it comes down to it. And probably uh, six or seven different varieties of rennet. So that's the other side of, of you know, our, our, our path towards cheesemaking that helps develop, uh, you know, recipes. It helps, 
kind of branch us out from the normal. Uh, you know, as a chef, they always said, change your salt, you'll mess with a chef. As a cheesemaker, you change to rennet, you'll mess with the cheesemaker. So, you know, if you can modify the way you use rennets or, or, you know, change what rennet you're using, that pepsin to chymosine ratio is integral to the, the aging process. And you will find that, you know, some rennets just inherently give sweeter notes to a milk. And then some are going to be a little more lactic. Some are going to be a little more proteolic. And it's just the nature of them. And, uh, you know, it just takes that, that passion of, of wanting to learn and, and, you know, be a little bit different that, that will help in the long run. Okay, Stacy, what about you? Wait a minute. Oh, Sam didn't tell us what keeps him up at night. Oh, oh I God. was listening. <laughs> uh, microbes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded answer. <laughs> um, you know, you know, microbes, good and bad. Um, you know, of course, the negative microbes kind of always keep all of us up at night, and uh, you know, it's something that. You know, we don't all like to talk about, but it is something that is there and it's a reality that we all have to understand and, and have a full understanding and realization that they are there and we have to be aware of them. But, uh, you know, the the things that keep me up at night of excitement would be something like the Cornerstone Project, you know, and the pursuit of of our own cultures and, you know, the, the moment that I'm able to learn from what Sue and Peter and everybody that's involved with that project is going to be huge for our industry. And it's, you know, that knowledge base coming from those individuals is just going to be a game changer for us all. And, you know, it does come into play that that's going to be the way we start to change culture in cheese figuratively and and specifically you know um when we can start pinpointing terroir and we can start pinpointing exactly what is different between all of our cheeses when we're all pursuing the same recipe is is going to be essential to i think uh creating that culture creating that story and creating the excitement that is truly exciting isn't it it is it is very much so it is, and I was gonna say, like, I wake up counting pounds of cheese. His answer was so much better than mine. That was a really good answer. I'm always like, how many pounds are <laughs> Okay, Stacy. All right, how you're about you? you're on the hot seat. Just as long as you're not counting microbes, Sue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm not as cool as our cheese makers, so I don't actually make cheese on the farm. But as the cheese marketing, sales, social media person, um. What keeps me up at night? Did I forget an order? No, no, everyone has their holiday cheese. Okay. <laughs> did I did I have a, a spelling error on my Facebook post today? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Stacy and I were talking about that, ordering a year's supply of cheese paper or whatever ahead. Well, I mean, what, what, what parts of the job just give you so much joy? How about that? Like Sam had touched upon, actually, you know, working with our, our chef customers and, and the enthusiastic cheesemonger community, community, especially right here in Philadelphia, um, we have a great local 
fan base, uh, all of all of the local cheesemakers in the state of PA do. We're, we're all really lucky, you know, and we have an amazing guild. Uh, so I would say community, just being part of this community, just like, you know, makes my heart smile. It's the uh, best part of my job is just feeling like um, any little bit, if it's either just training an employee within the industry, somebody young and enthusiastic that has no experience and, you know, you know that you're giving them all the knowledge you've learned from all of the great people from your travels and hoping that one day they can, you know, move forward and help the American landscape by keeping it preserved and keeping the tradition of cheese making alive. Uh, that's a huge honor. Uh, Maya, uh, my hourly employee at the creamery, she helps to do sales with me and uh, she's 21 years old and she pretty much could do my job when I'm on vacation or if I need to leave, uh, which really excites me. It means that, you know, my job of training her uh, was a success and her family is a historic dairy farming family in the area. So I hope one day she can bring that knowledge back to her own family farm and market and sell the pants off of the cheese that her family hopefully one day will make with her cow's milk. Uh, so so those are the greatest joys, uh, definitely my customers and just knowing that I'm part of a, a greater community with, with a lot of momentum, which is exciting, and also with a lot of opportunity still ahead of us. Yeah, I think that is a pretty promising and optimistic thought right there a lot there is a lot of momentum behind us you know we forget about it because we're at the vat it can be a little bit of a grind let's be honest a little bit (laughs) what maybe a little bit of a grind (laughs) I feel just so inspired you know just coming and chatting with both of you you know it's great and you guys are always so gracious to share your knowledge. I mean, Stacy, you taught us all how to ship cheese last year, <laughs> and we think about you every time we do it. Especially when I do my cross. Your crosses? Yes. Would Stacy approve of this? I'm not sure, but it's going to get there. Um, Sam, I mean, gosh, I, I remember coming and shadowing you when you were at Cherry Grove, and, you know, just like, you, you are really um, so open about this incredible knowledge that you have and so willing to share it and you're both just like really gracious people so thank you for doing what you do i'm not done yet i have another question i can can have you sign the article that you wrote for us though actually i have (laughs) a copy up in a memory box and then then i still have the uh from the asbury park press yes and then i still have the occidental cheesemaker article from my first culture magazine that sue was in so How long have you two been in the industry working together? So um, we've been in the industry working together for about 10 years now. Um, So I started at Cherry Grove uh, right around the recession, uh, the beginning of the recession uh, in 2008. Uh, You know, just lost my corporate chef gig and I kind of knew farm to table and local cuisine was going to be the next big thing. So I just wanted to kind of have a understanding of what was being produced in the region. So I knew who to buy from and had a personal relationship with them. So I just kind of wanted to go work farmers markets. But then I just had fallen in love with cheese making. And then uh, right around that time was right when I had met Stacy. Uh, and, you know, she was kind of in the same boat. Uh, she lost her corporate job. 
in 2009. Uh, yeah, Sam was gracious enough to introduce me to Kelly Harding, our mentor from, at Cherry Grove Farm. I started doing part-time farmer's market sales on the weekends while I was looking for my big corporate graphic design job. And during the recession, that was taking a little bit longer than expected. Uh, in the meantime, Kelly turned to me and was like, can't you just do that here? And I was like, I don't think you want to pay for a graphic designer on a small farmstead facility. Um, I don't think you understand what graphic design is. And he was like, well, you could do the farm store and some farmer's markets and, uh, you know, showcase the animals to the guests that come by. I was like, okay. And, you know, I explained to him about a 401k and all of these other great things that are out there in the real world. And he was like, maybe you could trade those in for a simpler kind of life. And I was like, yeah, I think I could. And uh, we've kind of took his advice that day and he trained us and took us under his wing uh, wholeheartedly. And he's still part of our dear friend, family, inner circle still to this day. And and yeah, so that's how it all started. Cherry Grove Farm. I love that he plied you with a simpler life. <laughs> he really fooled you, didn't he? Um, <laughs> maybe an easier commute, easier commute, but not a simpler life. <laughs> so that was, I mean, that's amazing. So that was 10 years ago. And here we are in 2018. You two got married last year on the farm. So one question that I have for you is, what is it like to, my gosh, like be in a partnership and now be married and work together and like have this passion together? It's, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's actually for us, it's really easy. Um, and that is the honest truth. And it's got a lot to do with our personalities. Um, we're very easygoing. Uh, we're very passionate. And then we're also both gourmands. So we're both kind of focused on quality of food, uh, nutritional level of food. And, um, you know, how is that food, uh, you know, modified or not modified? It's not the right word, but. How is that food cooked or used to uh, kind of create a dish or to create um, some type of an experience? And so it's been quite easy, even though we're kind of probably an odd couple, just because we do spend it's it's probably about you know a good sixteen to eighteen hours a day together, and then the other six hours is sleeping. So. So yeah, there's a, a good amount of time that we do spend together. <laughs> I think the key is uh, knowing kind of not crossing roles. You know, I respect the cheesemakers at the farm and I don't think of Sam as my husband so much when we're at work. I think of him as head cheesemaker along with Matt Hentliger. Um, and I respect, you know, their direction within the walls of the creamery um, and their leadership and as the as I think mutually so they respect my direction as manager with all of our sales and customers so we have quite different jobs but yet they come together you know in conversation 
here and there. Um, and of course, the workday never ends on a farm in general. And then when you're married, as Sue would know, because she works side by side with her husband on the farm and her children, um, you know, you go home and you're having dinner and then all of a sudden you just start talking about what your day was like. And that just happens to be the that shared workday. Um, we wind up then usually solving lots of problems in the evening and then running into work the next day like, hey, Matt. And we have this whole like synopsis and he's like overwhelmed slightly, I'm sure. And he's like, where were you? When were we talking about this? Oh, oh for the, you know, last three hours in the evening uh, after work. <laughs> uh, so it's actually pretty good for problem solving. We never quite drop a problem. We're always solving it, um, whether it's in the car or, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner with our family. <laughs> but we also, you know, again, uh, you know, with uh, Kelly Harding, you know, we got to just pay a lot of a lot of thanks and praise to him and his family. You know, he worked with Anita on the farm. So we had great examples of, you know, how do we need to. Uh, you know, treat each other and the amount of respect that needs to be held for family members and for colleagues. And, you know, once those are kind of crossing the added amount of respect that needs to be there. And, you know, so it's also just, you know, it's really nice to have that kind of a mentor in our lives and to, to be able to kind of use his experiences uh, to help kind of guide the way that we're going to kind of, you know, have our relationship kind of evolve. And, you know, I mean, Kelly definitely sat me down the, the day that he hired Stacy full time. And he said, is this going to be a problem? <laughs> and, you know, and we had a long talk about it. And he kind of gave me that guidance that was necessary and how I needed to, you know, how I needed to approach that scenario. Um, because I think he was, uh, you know, God, it must have been six years before his time, but I think he knew that we were going to get married, you know, and so he kind of predicted that ahead of time. So he was basically saying, hey, if you want to keep this one, you better treat her this way. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't know the name Kelly Harding, Kelly um, really kind of developed the program out at Cherry Grove and made it into this flourishing really beautiful farm, which is so important to the region and New Jersey because there are so few working dairy farms left. I think there's less than 50. And definitely uh, Cherry Grove is kind of leading the charge for value-added production. But Carrie, uh, uh, Kelly is like, he pops up all these kind of interesting places, you know. He helps a lot of folks get started cheese making, um, guides them through the process, consults with them. Um, he works with our friends out in Western PA, out at Goat Rodeo, a place, a couple of other, other areas. So if anybody's looking for somebody, Kelly is definitely, he can keep a marriage together. <laughs> What's what's on the horizon for you two? Um, like even in the short term here, uh, what are you thinking about for the coming year? What's exciting to you? So um, so you know the uh, the Trogues collaboration was definitely the focus of the last kind of six eight weeks of our our kind of life here. Um, but there's also you know plans of a little bit of expansion here at Doe Run. Uh, you know, obviously we're having a, a great, um, great positive feedback from all our products. 
and you know so the the demand is there so we obviously need to uh increase the supply to be able to kind of handle that and just kind of make our lives uh, a little bit easier take a little bit of pressure off of stacy um as far as uh you know just cheese requests coming in and where is she gonna get this cheese and you know uh cheese that should have been made eight months ago needs to be made today and you know so um you know, just to kind of be able to handle demand better, we're going to, you know, do a little bit of an expansion. But, um, you know, really where I'm kind of focusing now is uh, a lot of my pursuits is to get the next two cheesemakers uh, educated and, and up and coming through our our program here at Doe Run. And, uh, you know, kind of see where where that's going to take them and, you know, see where they want to take the the pursuits and, you know, here at Doe Run, we're, you know, have our extensive cheese line. So we'll probably be looking to uh, be naming a few cheeses soon, I'm sure. Um, but then there's also, you know, my pursuits of soft cheese. Uh, you know, soft cheese has a special place in my heart. And I always find that soft cheese is very complex. Uh, it's easily inconsistent. Um, so to be able to kind of create the, the same product day in, day out with multiple cheese makers, you know, how is that easily, uh, you know, how can I, how can I look at it a little different to be able to kind of pursue that? And then also, um, you know, just what's going to be the next new Rennet out there. <laughs> Maybe you'll start making your own Rennet. You never know, um, you know, talking to Jeremy and Peter and Mateo when they're they're using the uh, the little cuts of the Alba Mason, you know, I mean, that's a, the the, the Vell, yeah, you know, that's a dream of mine. I I feel like I could do it, but I also, you know, I uh, have such a great respect for those cheesemakers and their businesses that. You know, I'm not sure if I'm there yet in the same moment to be able to use those products and to be able to pursue my own rennets and to pursue my own culture even. You know, I find that it's uh, it's something that is just, you know, the unknown for me. So I, you know, I have a, just a little bit harder time of kind of just jumping off that bridge uh, into that pursuit. What, what's, what's next? On the horizon? <laughs> Well, Holly is uh, my main focus right now. We do have some great events, um, a tasting event on December 12th at DeBruno Brothers Rittenhouse with the fine folks at Trogues. They'll be driving through and stopping by the farm. We'll then all drive over to Rittenhouse to have a nice tasting event there with the Holly cheese and some great beers. We also uh, will be going to Trogues on the 14th then of December uh, to have a great tasting as well there with the Holly as well as um, uh, the Grand Crew, the Wild Elf, and the Mad Elf beer. So it'll be a kind of uh, a lateral tasting of three different versions of the Mad Elf. And uh, while producing the Holly collaboration, we sort of wound up with a Bloomy Rind version, which was more made after the Mayfly, and then more of this Wash Rind version. Uh, so we wound up selling the Bloomy Rind to De Bruno Brothers and then the Wash Rind version to Trogues. 
uh, seemed because it seemed more fitting. And um, each location kind of expressed a greater love for one style over the other. So it worked out. Um, and then we were like, oh, wouldn't it be great to sell both of them at DeBruno Brothers for customers to be able to have sort of this fun comparison of these two different recipes, but washed in the same beer and with this complete different outcome. Um, and so these events where we're coming together as the collaboration had originally started, the original folks uh, will be coming together and showcasing both recipes with the beer, which will be kind of fun. So it'll be the only time where we'll have both styles together. Uh, so I've been focusing a lot on that, making sure, you know, the holiday orders are all taken care of, making sure all of the customers are well stocked. Uh, we have a big Christmas market on I'm not sure when this will be aired, but it'll it'll be this Saturday on December 1st at Poplar Hall. So uh, oh, said that was crazy. it was crazy. Yeah, thousands of people. So I've been actually working all week to try to cut enough cheese for that market. Um, and I'm, I was happy to have the day off today uh, from cutting cheese. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just a lot of holiday markets and then uh, a little bit of a break in our near future. So, so that'll be nice. A little trip to Asheville to, uh, regroup and kind of recenter ourselves and get ready for, uh, the start of the new year. All right. So what I want to know when you head to Asheville, (laughs) I'm sure there's going to be music in your future. There's going to be good beer. What, what cheeses are you going to be looking out for? I don't know. I mean, there must be a cheese shop there. We should have done our little research. Yeah. Um, so I do know there is a farmstead cheese maker. Uh, they were, I believe they were a little further outside of Asheville, but they just started to, uh, I believe they just purchased a plant and a farm. They were a production, you know, production only facility. And now they just purchased a farm to be able to start doing some farmstead. But I don't know if they're up and running yet, and I don't remember their name. But, um, you know, it was, you know, again, it, it's all in that pursuit of cheese. Uh, so, you know, instantly I knew that I was going to be in the vicinity of Blackberry Farm. So I looked at there instantly, but it's about two hours. So it's a little bit further than than what will be kind of interested in but um but yeah we'll uh we'll stop at every you know we always take the back roads and we'll stop at every cheese sign we see and every cheese shop we find and you know we'll have uh you know um you know the uh the great pastime of uh of uh dashboard cheese boards that uh that is uh you know madame fromage and sue's and steph's uh pastime when they're traveling so we'll be uh partaking in that make sure you instagram I'll want to see, right? Uh, we always travel with our own board and our own knife, so. <laughs> great. Glad we finally got to just take an hour to sit down with you and dive into your world for a little bit. Yeah, I know. It's just a pleasure. It, you know, I just want to say to um, cheesemakers and cheesemongers out there who you know, maybe you need to find your community, like just make friends. That's what we've done. We've just like made friends. And when I meet a cheesemaker, I'm like, can I have your phone number? I might have to text you. (laughs) And I think probably the four of us, 
it's well it's very unusual for us not to text once a week <laughs> what's going on checking in talking about the weather what's happening with cheese making or crazy town stuff so I feel so fortunate to have you know to be part of your community and thanks for being here You know, uh, you know, we can't say enough to uh, what you both do for the industry as far as this podcast and the collective creamery and the the showing of uh, just, you know, what what can actually, you know, the positives that can come from uh, collaboration. And, you know, it really is uh, a good moment for cheesemakers. I think there's a lot of hope and promise for us all, even though there is, you know, dairy farms closing every day. Cheese is the answer. We just have to kind of figure out what's the mix that's going to be uh, the success for all dairy farms and all small farms. We are very proud to bring you the Rennet Roundtable today. This is an episode that we are devoting to Rennet, and it's a follow-up to our conversation that we had with Sam a few weeks ago. Um, you know, Sam, you started talking about uh, the rennet that you use in your cheese making, and Sue and I couldn't stop talking about it the whole way home, thinking about how many questions we had. And so we decided to um, dive a little deeper into the topic, also talk about different kinds of rennet that are out there, and the pros and cons of each. And uh, we also want to dive into the controversy around rennet, because you know we all get those questions at the farmer's market about rennet, and sometimes it feels like there's no easy answer, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Welcome, guests. Thank you for having us, Sue. This place is beautiful. I know. You, you've only gotten in the front door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to do a little tour. Sounds good. It's great. Vito, crack us open another beer, why don't you? Sure. <laughs> We've got a beautiful spread in front of us of cheeses that Vito and Sam and Sue brought us tonight. Um, all right. Well, just for the sake of geeking out, I pulled out my um, Oxford Companion to Cheese, which is newly published, and edited by Catherine Donnelly with a foreword by Matteo Keeler. And of course, um, you know, the entries are written by all sorts of experts around the country and around the world on cheese. It's a fabulous book if you haven't picked it up yet. But I was thinking that we could start with the first paragraph of the well, Reddit your, entry. Your issue looks really well loved already. <laughs> In the short life it's been here. Yeah. It, it's, Does yeah. it truck around with you in the car everywhere you go? <laughs> Pull it out? By my nightstand. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. All right. Great. Back to Renet. All right. Here we go. So um, here is the entry on Renet. Rennet refers to a group of enzymes classified as aspartic proteinases that are used in cheesemaking to coagulate milk. Technically, the term rennet is restricted to enzymes that are derived from the stomachs of mammals, most commonly milk-fed calves, kids, or lambs, although adult, adult animals may also serve as the source of rennet enzymes. This goes on and on, but I'll give you a couple more sentences. Um, animal rennet consists of a mixture of the enzymes chymosin and pepsin, with chymosin dominating when the source is young milk-fed animals and pepsin dominating when the rennet is derived from the stomachs of adult animals. The common usage, the term rennet, may also include milk coagulating enzymes that originate from plant sources, such as fig sap or the flowers of thistle, which are used in very traditional artisan cheese making. 
In modern practice, rennets can come from microbial sources, such as cultures of molds, as well as cultures of genetically modified organisms, such as yeast, that have acquired the gene for chymosin through recombinant DNA technology. All right, so that's just a little intro, but this is a page-long entry, so we won't, we won't bore you with that. Who wrote that entry? Uh, we'll get right back to you on that. All right, just curious. Inquiring minds, you know. Kinstead. Oh. And that's who you want. Well, you want I heard him. him speak about Rennet at ACS a few years ago in Montreal, and he shared the stage with another science-y type person, and darned if she didn't take up predominantly the whole session. So the, but by the time Dr. Kinstead got up there, he didn't have enough time. And you know how those sessions are. As soon as you get to the meat of it, ah, they're over. Oh, it's so true. Yeah. Anyway, we like to learn by, you know, the living, the yeah. living uh, classroom. That's right. <laughs> so let's just start off by talking about the types of rennet that we're all used to working with in our operations. All right, Sam, you want to kick it off? So with the farm at Doe Run, uh, we use predominantly, so for the most part, we use uh, two different uh, just normal single strength animal rennets. Uh, one comes from a purveyor here in Pennsylvania, the other one from a purveyor in Wisconsin. Uh, and then we also use three different types of calf or rennet paste, uh, which would be rennet with lipase still kind of entwined in the mixture. Uh, so we use a calf rennet, uh, calf rennet paste, so which is a dolce. We use a uh, semi-piquant rennet paste, which comes from sheep, and then a piquant rennet paste, which also comes from uh, goats. So a uh, great product, um, definitely gets really good lipolic action from it, but it does uh, get really good lipolic action. So with Jersey cows, you always have to be careful. Yeah, meaning it can accelerate, it, it can break it, down the fat too quickly. Yes, yeah. and you know, uh, lipase isn't something that culturally we use heavily in the U.S. at the moment. Uh, you find it much more in Italian cheeses. So uh, if you have lipase in your cheese, it automatically, everybody's first thought is, oh my God, it's a sharp provolone. And you're like, oh no, it's not a stracciatella, you know, it's, it's not stretched, it's not anything like that. It's kind of the exact opposite. So... Where did your, where did your, um, like, I guess, journey in using uh, rennet pastes begin? What, what first drew you into? So um, with, at the farm at Doe Run, uh, we have all three herds, all three milking herds. So we're lucky enough to milk cow, sheep, and goats. Uh, and so with that, you know, you start reading in a lot of the original literature that was out there. And they kind of tell you to always use the rennet that is uh, associated with that animal. So if you're using, you know, if you have cow's milk, use cow's rennet. Same thing for goat and sheep. And so I started running down those roads. And actually, uh, in that process, I had uh, ran into a couple products that were coming through um, actually Yoav or Yov. Um, where he was bringing in some of the French sheep rennet and French goats rennets. And uh, what I realized is that I don't know French. And so I didn't know how to read that, the literature on the actual packaging. So I'm sitting there trying to translate it. And just uh, in that same process of Googling, I found Walco Ren. Uh, Walco Ren is this great rennet company out of Quebec uh, that does 
you know, everything from single strength or actually they do a double strength veal rennet, uh, but then all the way up to rennet paste and rennet tablets, but they're also non-GMO and an organic product. So it kind of falls into the philosophy, uh, especially when you're dealing with customers, you can kind of use that as a selling point and say, look, you know, like at least it is being harvested in a, in a humane way uh, with those controls in, in mind. Yeah, totally. What kind, Vito, what kind of rennet are you used to using? Most places just uh, calf rennet, I guess. Um, but when I worked at, uh, so Meadow Creek, we used uh, regular, like single straight calf's rennet. And then when I worked at Parish Hill, we had a Swiss brand of calf's rennet for most of the cheeses. And then for the Ketchikavallo, like the provolone, we used uh, uh, kid paste, which is uh, a goat kid paste. And it's like this like really chunky rennet. Uh, it kind of smells weird and all that stuff. And then with like home experiments a lot, I've experimented a lot with uh, uh, thistle rennet. Uh, making, I was like been fascinated with making like um, Iberian style soft cheeses. So, you know, they use that for like cheeses, like most of their like Torta del Casar and uh, Amontillados from Portugal and stuff like that. So, but years ago, I didn't know how to make those cheeses. Uh, so I just make like a Reblochon and I'd use uh, thistle rennet. And it was really cool actually, like you'd see, cause it would like protolize. Cause what happens with thistle rennet, it never stops protolizing uh, a cheese. Like it's, it's active the whole, for its whole way, for its whole life. So then I went to Portugal last year and I met with people who, who they taught me how to use thistle rennet to make like amontillados and they're all kind of the same cheese, but they all like deviate a little bit region to region, um, you know, like either through the animal or the amount of when they add, add the rennet. Cause they're, so what they'll do is they'll salt the milk, add no cultures to it. And then they make it in like a ceramic glazed vessel and they put it next to a fire. This is how they traditionally did it. And then they would add the rennet. And uh, so there's no like fermentation early on and uh, it's like the aging of the cheese from all like the leftover whey in it. Eventually it'll start the fermentation later through the raw milk, but that cheese would usually be like really hard if you just added like rennet to it and didn't do anything to it. But that, th uh, the thistle rennet doesn't stop and it just keeps like fermenting it over time. So it starts like really hard. It's like, and then it breaks down over time through that. So, and then it gets hard again eventually once it like dries out completely, so. In your, in both of your experiences, does thistle rennet, is it true to its reputation that it can cause bitterness if it's not used with sheep's milk? You know, it might. I, I have like a really bad palate. I don't taste like the whole spectrum of bitterness, you know. So some people who are susceptible, you know, because they say like there's like 46 different or 60 flavors of bitterness that are like all throughout your tongue. I can't remember the exact number, but, you know, I've been eating, I'm from like New Jersey's and I've been eating broccoli rob my entire life. <laughs> And like, you know, I've been drinking IPAs since I'm like 13. So I mean, like, it's like I don't really detect bitterness anymore. You know, if this yeah. was still like evolutionary times, I'd probably be dead. You know, from you know, because bitterness was like something's toxic. You know, no, but it's cleansing. Yeah, yeah right. So, but yeah, so I don't know. It might. I never detected it because I used to get at home. I used to get really good Jersey milk, so yeah, high fat and all that stuff. But I, I never picked up on that bitterness from rennet and cow's milk but they say like it works 
for like it works really good for sheep's milk because it doesn't have the same uh, fat structure or something like that. I don't exactly remember all that stuff, but. So uh, for me, as far as thistle rennet goes, I don't have that much experience with it. I do have some in my rennet refrigerator, uh, but I'm not fully sure and confident about how to use it. Um, really what it comes down to for me is all the recipes I've read are like a four hour set. And I just can't wrap my head around that because it's so exact opposite of, of everything that we do at the farm at Doe Run. So for me, it's just a little bit harder to wrap my head around it. And again, there's no literature. So you have to go out with, you know, with what Vito did with actually getting out in the field and being able to, to actually touch the cheese maker and kind of feel what they're kind of seeing and how to cooperate with the milk and their respect and their philosophy with how to make that cheese um, but I could see it being bitter uh, just because you know as Vito is saying it's it's got high proteolysis mm -hmm. uh, and anytime you go over proteolysis you always have the the ability to get bitter proteins uh, bitter peptides I mean it's just that's the realities of it uh, especially if you start cleaving the beta casein uh, that's where a lot of bitterness comes from that's where you know bitter in you know, with regular veal rennets, uh, bitter from that usually is the is the B casein, the beta casein that you're kind of cleaving. Uh, so you're just using too much rennet, and that's what's actually causing that bitterness. So it's, you know, uh, for somebody with little experience, that's the best I can kind of put out there. Thistle rennet is, like, kind of inconsistent. Like, the laboratories are trying to, like, work on it now. But, you know, as your, like, protein-to-fat ratio and the rest of the, the milk composite changes you know, that rennet reacts different to the whole milk. And every, like I've used it on different farms' milks and it fermented, it coagulated differently from different milks. So, and then too, I've, I've been to like lectures of people who make like, uh, so like, you know, laboratory thistle rennet is kind of like a new thing. It's like actually destroying traditional ways of making cheese in like the Iberian Peninsula and stuff. But because the tradition is, Basically, you just get the the flowers, every, you know, you dry them out whenever they're harvested and you dry them. And then every day you make like an emulsion with you, like you mix water and salt with uh, the thistle flowers. And then you test it like every three days and you make like enough for three days. There was a really good lecture a couple years ago at ACS. Uh, what's her name? Mariana Marquis Almedia. That was great. It was awesome. And she, yeah, yeah she, she went into like how they do it and it's like an artisan thing and it's basically farm to farm, person to person and it's like how long you want your coagulation time to be and all that. So, and it's made every three days like in batches because that milk's gonna change because it's like, their components are changing really fast because it's only like a six month lactation cycle and the seasons are really drastic there too. And then too, you know, you're just using like a little bit, you know, they're not making, you know, 2000 liter Fats of uh, Torta del Casar, or, uh, you know, some, you know, like uh, Sarah Australia, they're making like little batches of it. So, um, you know, like a couple little extra half a grams are going to change that ratio. So, you know. Yeah, that's crazy. But the laboratory that's selling, sorry, I keep talking about this, but the laboratory that uh, is here, there's one here in Pennsylvania. They're getting the thistle flowers from Spain, I think. And then they ship them over here, and then there's a laboratory like trying to standardize uh, the thistle flowers. I forget the name of the company, but are they the ones who show up at ACS? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I could find it. 
I believe her name is uh, Christina Barca. I uh, met her at ACS, and she had sent me down some some rennet. Um, but yeah, again, it's that that whole breaking out of your comfort zone and uh, risking you know a, a, a pretty substantial volume of milk to try to get some test batches in. And you know, with our demand, I just don't have the ability to kind of run that. You know, um, and we're not set up. If you know, I'm not set up to make cheese like they would make a camembert in France. Where you know you're renting you know 20 different vats and 15 minute different increments, so I don't know if I could even fit it into our system, and so that's where it kind of gets a little dicey for me with kind of breaking out to that style of rennet, where it's just completely new technology to me. I mean, to to be fair to you, Sam, you're dealing with three species milk. You're making a full spectrum of cheeses from all of the those different milks. I think you can go easy on yourself with this thistle issue. <laughs> you you have enough volatility in your yeah. uh, to, to manage enough variables yeah. to enough manage. variables. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's like that's a juggling act right there. Okay, do you really have a rennet fridge? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Yep, yeah. So we have one fridge that's dedicated to all our rennets, um, as well as some other ingredients. You know, some other refrigerated ingredients that we need to keep on hand, uh, just for different projects that we're kind of working on. Um, because, you know, we do have the whole other side of the farm, which is the gentleman's side, where we do do some custom work just for the owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, we were talking a little bit about the different types of rennet, and I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what it is to be a vegetarian-friendly rennet. And we can all chime in here, but Sam, would you kick us off and talk to us a little bit about the different types that are out there? Of course, the two that I'm most familiar with uh, are going to be Mucor Mehi uh, and then the GMO rennet. Um, the GMO rennet is a yeast strain that's actually spliced with the animal gene to create chymosine uh, or pepsin. They can actually do either. Um, so, you know, with those rennets, you usually get 100% versions of one or the other. So you have 100% chymosine or 100% pepsin. Uh, both of those are highly active ingredients that will, you know, have detrimental, or not detrimental, but significant impacts on the aging of the cheese. Um, but then, you know, with the GMO rennet, it's kind of, you know, if you look back into the, the mid-80s, um, GMO rennet or yeast-bound rennet is actually one of the reasons why GMOs were kind of forced into the American population. Um, and it was for that style of rennet. That was one of the first GMO products that came onto the market in the U.S. Um, in the mid-80s. Uh, and so, you know, it's got that negative to it. Um, I'm not fully convinced that it's uh, better than something that comes naturally in the world. Uh, you know, personally, the volume of rennet to milk, the ratio that's used, the volume of rennet is so minuscule to the volume of milk and the poundage of cheese that you're going to get from that milk that, you know, to me, it's not a extremely important side of what I'm going to eat. I'm actually more concerned about how that rennet was found, how that rennet was created. Um, you know, I'd rather have it all come from happy animals than, than sad animals. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, when I get asked that question at a farmer's market, and because we use calf rennet too in our operation, um, and when I get asked that question, I've, my answers have changed over the years to be like a little bit more direct and blunt with people. I think 
at the beginning, I was just trying to be inclusive and, you know, you're at a farmer's market, so you want to be inclusive and friendly. Um, but I started talking to people about how cheese shouldn't really be treated as a vegetarian food. It's very true. It's made with milk. And it's something that, you know, maybe it's controversial for me to, to say that. And I could see some people kind of like walking away, but, um, you know, someone asked like, okay, but don't you know that those baby calves are being killed for their stomach to make rennet? And I just always want to say calves are being harvested on a farm because they don't produce milk, not because we're trying to extract rennet. And you have to understand how a dairy farm works if you want to understand why rennet is a cyclical part of it. Right. Right. So it's hard to, you know, shout at someone at a farmer's market as they're walking away from you with this information. But um, I just, I think it would be good for the cheese community to just be more open about. How many customers do you think you lose because of using animal rennet? Maybe two or three a year. Yeah, I might have two walk away a year. Yeah. Which I think is insignificant amount. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to talk about this because, you know, when you, like you said, when you first get into cheese making, you're trying to like really take care of all the customers because you need them all. And then you realize you just can't be all things to all people. And we find in our cheese making, what is our own personal kind of journey and truth with our product? And that's when I think the magnificent beauty of what we do comes alive Yeah, when we're just being true to our mission. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity to try to smooth things over to make the sale. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like taking a stand and trying to be a little bit more of an educator, right? which in the long term will maybe pay off more than in the short term. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got, we raise veal on our farm for, for meat and I have a really great, uh, community of customers, but I'm always intrigued when people will come up who are meat eaters and they say, I can't eat veal, but yet they eat chicken, they eat pigs, they eat lamb. That is all about harvested the same time that veal is harvested, you know? So, and even a steer is still an immature cow, you know, like 18 months. So anyway, we're going down the slippery slope here, (laughs) but it is a topic we're all intrigued in because we're all animal lovers. We're all, you know, thoughtful about how we operate our in our world of cheese making and this is the intersection of that about cheese makers and dairy farmers being some of the most compassionate animal lovers that are probably walking this ground you know like that's who you're buying from right and you know um a, a good portion of all of that is is you know that the customer just might not know and you know because that same customer is going to the organic farm right next door to buy organic vegetables but they're worried about the rennet that's being used when it's in, uh, you know, if it's, especially if it's a vegetarian rennet, most of them are non, or, you know, are going to be GMO based. And, you know, and so, you know, part of that is, you know, having that knowledge out there that all rennet isn't equal and it's not, you know, some of it is just marketing. And unfortunately, you know, the people that have money invested into the GMO world have really good marketing behind it. And that's just part of what we have to kind of swim through as makers, as creators, as well as, you know, eaters. Uh, You have to make those choices in in your diet. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, kind of we always approach it from the side of we're, we're about whole animal usage, whole carcass use. 
And so every part of that animal should have a use. And, you know, if you look at our food landscape, a lot of our food, the biggest problem or the biggest products on the market are actually byproducts of another industry. Um, bacon. For the longest time, you could not sell bacon quick, you know, for you couldn't even get rid of a pork belly, you know, as, you know, uncured, just pork belly. But then somewhere in the late, you know, 2000s, all of a sudden pork belly was the big item on a restaurant menu and then you couldn't get enough pork belly into the market. And so, you know, it's all these little, you know, minutiae that we're not, you know, really accustomed to in, in our food culture, but that actually do have a pretty impactful side of it that, you know, a lot of these things are byproducts and, you know, we have to figure out how to use them best. And, you know, rennet is one of those. You know, we don't eat tripe in this country, so it's got to go somewhere. Honestly, when we butchered we our pigs, we asked for the tripe back, and the uh, inspector, USDA inspector, wouldn't allow us to have it. Really? Yeah, the tripe, or and the one when the one butcher shop, the trotters, the feet. Huh. You know, because they were dirty. I always wanted the call fat, and I couldn't oh, get call fat. It's impossible, yeah. almost. Yeah. Huh. We have a long way to go. I've seen tripe soup on the menu at a few PA Dutch diners up in the Ole Valley, so well, just throwing it out there. They have access. <laughs> <laughs> we have different rules regulating right. us up there. That's right. Uh, Vito, do you have a good answer when you get asked about this at farmers markets? Or uh, no, I don't really work farmers markets too often and stuff like that. But yeah, when people ask, you know, it's just like I always say, you're literally just adding per gallon a few eye drops. And then you just span it out over. So it's like not even one whole percent. It's not, you know, like your ratio of milk to this rennet is like a f not a fraction of a fraction of a percent that goes into the milk. So, I mean, you know, I mean, and then it always makes me think, you know, because there's so much debate now going on in California with all this lettuce and, you know, uh, you know, all the animal manure and it's coming from salmonella laden cows and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know, cow, like humans and animals and vegetables, we all evolved together, you know, and uh, the system's definitely out of balance a little bit now, but we need animals to sustain like a vegetable food system. You know, if not, it's just all, you know, it's all synthetic fertilizers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we need animals in the system for it to be more sustainable, but not in a manner we're doing it right now, so... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think system is the right word. And I feel like um, in a lot of ways, cheesemakers are so great at, um, I mean, our whole world is a system, right? Like from yeah. the grass to the dairy, to the grain, to the milk, to every enzyme and every ingredient. Yeah, the microbes, microbes, every ingredient that we're managing. Like it's all a systemic approach to, yeah, managing the microbiome. Yeah, and there's been that like, you know, it was like a, in my opinion, or, you know, it's fact, it's like a co-evolution, you know. Uh, there's that new cartoon video up that, uh, it's Paul Kinstead. Uh, you guys, you see this? It's like a cartoon video. Yeah, I saw it on Facebook like two weeks ago. And it's how, like, cheese basically is like the aider in creating society, you know, because now we had stored, like, with cheese. Before that, we were like hunter-gatherers. We were just wandering around following cows. And then, you know, we started having milk. And now at that time, we then had stored, you know, protein, calcium, and fat, 
you know, before that we couldn't, we just had to kill something and that's how we would get protein and fat. And then this was the first time in our evolution that we were able to store it. And, uh, but there's a little cartoon, I guess it's like maybe five minutes long. It's pretty awesome. So. All right. We'll have to look it up. <laughs> but yeah, it's coevolution. <laughs> coevolution. Um, okay. Let's go back into cheese making for a minute. I just have, I think a few more questions about the role that rennet plays. Um, so Sam, you told us a little bit about the types of rennet that you use, a few of which are paste uh, rennets. And I'm wondering what those specifically contribute to your cheese making process. So, um, you know, with the different rennets, I mean, again, you're talking the difference in, uh, it's, so when you're getting into animal rennets, you're looking at when was the, the animal harvested. Uh, so as you were saying, you know, the younger the animal, the more chymosine, uh, the older the animal, a little more pepsin. And those two ingredients and their ratios actually have a substantial role in the secondary fermentation of cheese or the aging of cheese, uh, where, you know, pepsin is a heavy proteolic breakdown. Uh, it's the significant portion of the first aging practicing or the first aging of the cheese with the proteolic breakdown comes from pepsin uh, so you know either washing the curd and removing residual rennet or not washing a curd and leaving it in there is all both going to have substantial effects uh, same thing with a soft cheese uh, you want a little gooier texture you can tweak the rennet a little bit uh, because you will you know start seeing that difference um, and especially when you're getting into different varieties uh, with that ratio of, of chymosine to pepsin. But you know, something like the St. Malachi, I know I've tried making St. Malachi with other rennets. I know it doesn't work. Um, we don't get the same amino acid breakdown. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't get the, the Helveticus, the Lacta Helveticus actually doing what we want it to do. Uh, it's still making, you know, sweet notes. It's still making Parmesan notes. It's still doing all that, but it's not doing it as heavily because it's not the, the proteolic just isn't there to do that initial breakdown for the Helveticus to kind of work in the, in the long run. And so, you know, I forgot where I was going. Again, though, it's I a know system. It's right. Yeah, yeah, you're going deep. <laughs> you are. I was like, I'm like so. <laughs> um, you know, but so you got to look at those ratios of that chymosine to pepsin ratio. Um, and so, again, you know, the higher the pepsin, the better proteolic breakdown you'll have in the long run. So if you're getting some bitter notes in your cheese and you can't figure out what it is, you might want to start looking at either your amounts of rennet that you're using or the type of rennet that you're using. Um, again, it could be high in pepsin, you know, it could have been from an older animal. And that's usually, it's not something that'll be listed directly on the rennet bottle, but it is information that the, the manufacturer has. You just have to go out of your way to ask. Uh, same thing with the IMCUs. Uh, some use IMCUs, some use a concentration, uh, but they'll all have IMCU on hand. So you can use that as a judge of what your strengths of rennet are because they're all are going to coagulate at different rates. Um, you know, and you just have to remember what you're trying to obtain is the same firmness in your gel. That's key. Uh, so, you know, if it took you 10 minutes to get there, you might've used too much rennet. If it took you an hour and a half to get there, you might've used thistle rennet, you know, I, you just never know. So you got to kind of look and, and that's what makes, 
using multiple rent, it's a little more difficult because you have to be willing to do those test batches. You have to be willing to really take that substantial look at it in the long run and kind of look for the note, you know, what defects you'll see in an, in an aged cheese uh, with brittleness, uh, with bitter notes. And, you know, you have to be able to make those adjustments uh, per year, per season, however you're aging your cheese. Are you, so are you quicker to adjust your, I think I've asked you this before, but are you quicker to adjust your rent amount that you're adding as opposed to, to keep your rates the same? Or are you okay kind of holding your rent at pretty steady and allowing those rates to adjust through the season? Um... It, it probably, it, it highly depends. Uh, and it really depends on what species of animal you're talking about. Um, if it's goat or sheep's milk, I usually start backing off on rennet. If, if I'm firming, if I'm coagulating too quickly, I'll start backing off on rennet first. Uh, if you're talking cow's milk, um, we might adjust calcium chloride. Uh, that's a pretty good way to kind of use, you know, to be able to get different firmness, uh, different flocks, uh, you know, diff and depends on how you're measuring flocculation. But uh, I'll usually look at some of the other parameters as well. I mean, cheese making's got so many variables, it kind of gets difficult to wrap your head around. But, you know, I might, uh, instead of looking at amounts of rennet, I might look at temperature that I'm renting at. Or I might look at ripening time and what pH I'm at. Um, and those two things have substantial effects on, on the effectiveness of rennet. Uh, because the last thing you want to do in cheese making is waste money. We have plenty of locations to waste money in cheese making. Uh, so on rennet is actually one of the spots that you don't want to waste money because you're not only losing money, but you can be losing product, which is a loss of money in the long run anyways. That's interesting. I like asking cheesemakers about like which variables they, you know, prioritize adjusting for because we're all adjusting every day, right? And um, I think everyone kind of has their own philosophy about like, yeah, how to just um, approach that, you know, the changes in milk and um, try to make it a consistent product in the end, which is the goal. perpetual <laughs> challenge. <laughs> it is a perpetual challenge. Sam, by the way, congratulations on your awards at the PA Farm Show. Oh, thank you very much. First and second best in show for St. Malachi and Seven Sisters. We had a little bit of drama at the Pennsylvania Farm Show. All right, dish it out. Well, <laughs> the morning of the awards, I got a phone call at, what, like 7.30? I can't remember what time I texted you guys. 7.30 by the head of the competition. Somebody broke in and stole the first and second best in show cheeses out of the case and then one other cheese and it's so a whole wheel of saint malachi a whole wheel of seven sisters golly they sure knew what to take um i was I waiting it was an for, inside job i'm inside job <laughs> sam was like you know i'm sure there's cameras here we're like yeah i bet there are cameras here but anyway there was a lot of drama and um 
thankfully they showed up with wheels of cheese so they could be displayed. It was it gave us a little bit of excitement, didn't it? It did, it did. You know, um, I the guess things uh, that happen. Yeah, you never live in immortality until you get <laughs> until you get your cheese stolen. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's I like I thought it should have been like on the nightly news or something. We should have leaked it to the press. You know, they show that stuff in Canada, but not in the US, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> so the thief is still like out and about. All right, everybody, yeah. lock up lock your, your doors. Lock up your cheese caves. It's on the black market right now. Yeah, yeah. Forty-eight dollars a pound. Next to the truffles. Anyway, congratulations. Of course, the collective creamery had the insight to order up this cheese for the cheese share two weeks ago. I mean, so. let's not count this short. You guys got awards here, too. So I know, but we're here to talk about you. <laughs> That's good. That's so, fun. All right. Any other thoughts on Rennet, guys? You know, I just had an interesting experience when I was in Italy with, um, with Tanaya, Madame Fromage. We did a trip, and we visited uh, an, older, an older gentleman who was a cheesemaker. He was a shepherd had a, a flock of sheep, and we made cheese with him. And so he had these massive fig trees all around his little, just tiny little, I don't know, very rustic cheese-making facility. And we said, you know, have you ever used the fig, the fig tree to um, for coagulation? He said, yeah, when I was young. So we coagulated that little vat of milk with, a fig branch. Oh, that's so it was like so crazy. And if you ever cut off, you know, a fig branch, that milky juice, that sap comes right out. And he just put a little bit, he hardly just any, right just dro- well, he's, he's dropped it in and stirred it. And darned if that didn't set up, the cheese was beautiful. Cool. So I thought, well, I wonder what the FDA would think about that. So didn't, um, <laughs> that's awesome. Didn't um, Meadowood cheese make like a cardoon? set um, cheese at one point. We got to call Veronica. Yeah. (laughs) If anybody knows, please let us know. You know, they did do their soft gooey cheeses really well. So that could be the reason. (laughs) Could be. Isn't that something? I mean, we do live in this, you know, we were just talking about the world of cheese and how amazing the people are. You know, it's never the same. I mean, I do the same thing almost every day, but it's never the same. You know, and the community is really rich. And these are some of the reasons, because we can talk about Rennet, and it's intriguing and exciting to us. I mean, Vito and I were just looking, strolling through Instagram before you guys got here, and we were super excited that Brian Civitello from Mystic Cheese put up uh, his new facility with all of his uh, cleaning brushes on the wall. (laughs) Weren't we? We were like, look how awesome that looks. Nothing better than highly organized brushes. (laughs) You know, all the yellows were here, all the whites on that wall. They look great. And then you start asking, what do you think he uses the yellow for? (laughs) I think he's using the yellow for the floor. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, you guys, for being here today. And, you know, at the Rennet Roundtable. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for coming by, guys. Oh, so I just want one last thing on Rennet. Um, you know, in the market of cheese, you know, because we're all, you know, we're all trying to obtain the same goal and we're all trying to, you know, kind of 
yeah, just kind of all trying to have a livelihood. And, uh, you know, it is always a risk to do test batches. But if you really want your product to stand out in the crowd of, of the cheese world, try a new rennet. Uh, see where it sends you. See where it'll take you. It might take you in a different direction that you didn't even know was even kind of there or even obtainable in your product. Uh, so I just kind of, you know, go out there, test, try, uh, be real with yourself and be honest. That's a, that's a call to our more adventurous selves. I like it. <laughs> All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.